You're listening to the podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a church in Gloucester, England. Well, we come now uh, back to the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 4. Last week we had looked at the temptations of Jesus, uh, where where Satan directly confronted him in the wilderness. And coming out of the wilderness now, we see uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, not beaten, uh, but victorious. And we'll see that uh, though he is victorious, uh, Luke gives us a picture of the ministry yet to come. And so as we come to this text, we're certainly thinking of uh, Jesus stepping out of the wilderness, out of this temptation. But in many ways, the passage that we'll read, the temptation isn't over yet. Uh, Jesus's life isn't suddenly uh, magically easy. In fact, Luke really highlights for us the difficulty that he's yet to face and really instructing us that this difficulty will continue really all the way to the cross. Uh, So hear these words. We'll start in verse 14 and read to verse 30 of chapter 4. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding countries, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that, he was, that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine covered all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian." When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So Luke here records for us, really, Jesus' instance of his public ministry, and and we'll deal with this in a moment, but again, it's instructive to see the way Luke is framing his story, that we get these are Jesus's first words in his public ministry. 
this wonderful quotation uh, from the book of Isaiah. These wonderful words of what Jesus' ministry is all about. And Luke really wants us to frame uh, chapter, verses 16 through 30 as, as lenses by which we see the rest of his gospel. But we'll be looking at this text this morning into really just three parts. Uh, verses 14 and 15 just wonderfully proclaim Jesus as the victor, that Jesus is victorious. As we've seen, he was, uh, it seemed as if he was, he was beaten down, he was hungry, he was fasting, he was tempted by Satan, he was dwelling in the wilderness. You could be forgiven that maybe after this he needed a, a holiday and a respite. But it shows him coming out of the wilderness in the power of the Spirit, going around and teaching and proclaiming the kingdom of God. And, and people around are marveling at him and what he is doing. But then Luke then brings us into Nazareth in verses 16 through 21 and really highlights for us Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah, the one that Israel's hope has been would come one day. Jesus here in one swift moment affirms for these people that he is in fact this Messiah. But fascinating really to me is that this episode also highlights for us Jesus as the rejected one. In verses 22 through 30, Jesus is, is, is not just passed over. Jesus isn't just rejected in the sense of, well, that's your belief. You're just a crazy person. No, Jesus is rejected in the way in which they are seeking actively to kill him. And this is the rejection that will follow him all of his ministry, all the way to the cross. And so we'll start with Jesus as the victor over this conflict with Satan in verses 14 through 15. And you know, with me in verse 14, it speaks about the way in which in the power of the Spirit, Jesus returns to Galilee. Jesus being uh, filled with the Spirit in this great capacity is doing all of these mighty works in and around this area of Galilee. And of course, uh, his fame is spreading. I mean, we can just think of it today. If someone had shown up and was healing diseases and proclaiming these mighty works, uh, especially in the rise of social media, right? This would be spreading like wildfire. But you have to also remember where Israel is in their history. There have been 400 years since there had been a prophet, there have been 400 years since the Lord had, had really spoke to them directly. And there have been 400 years since a, a prophet had done any mighty miracles in Israel. And so there's this long period of silence. And, and in the midst of that silence, we first stand up John the Baptist, who is proclaiming this baptism of repentance, this way in which he is preparing the people for someone even greater than himself. And suddenly then Jesus appears on the stage and you know, we've, we are privy to his, his birth and his baptism and his temptation, his confirmation. But others would really just see there is this, this new man here on the scene who appears to be a mighty prophet of God, proclaiming things for God and doing these mighty works to confirm that. But really, Luke is highlighting for us that this is not a mere prophet. This is somebody greater 
than all of the prophets in the Old Testament. This is, this is someone who has, has landed here in order that good news would be proclaimed, liberty would be accomplished, people would be free, that the year of the Lord's favor would be proclaimed. That this is someone greater than just a, uh, than just a prophet, as, as amazing and mighty as they are. But as the other gospel writers also emphasize that not only was Jesus here to liberate the captives, to bring healing, but he was also here in verse 15 to, to teach. And Luke says he, he, he's going around to these synagogues and he is teaching. He is proclaiming these things. His mission has come uh, to, to teach and to proclaim the kingdom of God, as we'll see in what Luke records for us when he goes to Nazareth. And then as he's doing these things, doing these miracles, right, teaching these things, the people then, it says, and he's being glorified by all. Again, contrary to Jesus walking out of the, the, the wilderness exhausted and depleted, rather, uh, it almost seems as if he's now strengthened, ready for the task. He has defeated Satan in this one-to-one -one match, and now he is going forward, taking back his territory proclaiming the kingdom of God, freeing people from his bondage. And the people are glorifying him. And now when we see this, that, that people everywhere are glorifying him, the, the wording there really has uh, some ambiguity to it. Glorifying him could mean probably what we first read it as. They're, they're glorifying him as the Christ, as the Son of God, as the one sent by the Father, and they're glorifying God and giving thanks. But the word can also actually mean kind of a, a lower level that his reputation has increased, that he has gained fame, if you will, uh, throughout the land. And, and likely, I think Luke here is probably just meaning the ambiguity that both of them are what's happening. Right? Even as, as we'll see throughout the rest of the gospel, there are, there are many who see that he is the Son of God and they glorify God. You can think of many of the people that Jesus heals. They immediately proclaim that he is the Son of God. They bring glory to the Father. And they believe Jesus as God. But there are also many, and again, actually, the text that we have before us highlights this view of Jesus as just a mere good teacher. Right? We have really throughout the, either Jesus is God or Jesus is just simply just another teacher. Right? There are many who will hear his words and even in his hometown, who will be amazed by what he says. And then yet they'll continue to live their life completely unchanged. Completely unchanged. I mean, we can just think of the, the deep sadness that that should, should well up in us, that, that these individuals had Jesus Christ in front of them, proclaiming to them, preaching to them, demonstrating that. And they, they looked on and were completely unchanged by that experience. But obviously, you probably know where I'm going, right? We sit every Sunday. We, we sit every Sunday where the word of God is proclaimed to all of us. These people actually would have had a very truncated view of what was going on. Whereas through the, the messages of the Gospels in the Old Testament, we have a much fuller picture of what was happening. We have all of the Old Testament buildup that we know. Then we have the New Testament that, that shows us time and time and time again who Jesus is, what he came to do, and what he is preaching. 
And it is, it's a great sadness that, that many outside may hear these words and they are left unchanged. If you've ever shared the gospel with anybody and seen the sadness of somebody continuing on as if they didn't have this wonderful experience before them of knowing the truth and rejecting it. But yet how many of us, right? how many of us can sit here Sunday by Sunday and be unchanged by these words that Jesus himself is speaking to us? And I confess, I'm a minister. I, I can sit under other preaching and I can preach myself and be unchanged by these words. And it's something to our great shame that we need to hear these words, but not just hear them, be changed by them. Because in the end, that's what matters. Right? Satan knows these words. Satan knows them clearly better than, than I do. And yet he's unchanged by them. All right, when you end up in heaven before the judgment seat of God, it is not going to be the question of, did you understand what was being said? That's not the question that's going to be asked. The question was, did it change you and did you believe it? And so even here in these first two verses, we get this wonderful picture of Jesus Christ proclaiming the good news, doing these mighty works, being empowered by the Spirit. And one of the, the best things I think that we see in chapter 4 of Luke's gospel is that Jesus is doing all of this through the power of the Holy Spirit. When we come to the temptations, right, we, we resist temptation actually the same way Jesus does. But when it comes to proclaiming the gospel, advancing the kingdom, tearing down the strongholds of Satan, actually Luke says again, this is not rocket science. He says actually we follow the same path as Jesus. If you don't believe me, you just need to turn to the end of Luke, chapter 24, verse 46. Jesus says to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in the name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And here it is. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And we've looked at the book of Acts and we've seen the way in which the spirit descends in this mighty way and what happens to the church after that. 5,000 are added in a day. All right, just from these two verses, we really are to follow the example. We are to be witnesses, but witnesses who are in the spirit with that power to proclaim. But also, after these two verses, as they're, they're coming on the heels of temp, the, the temptation, and as we know the trajectory of the Gospels, is that Jesus is victorious here. He will be victorious at the end, at the cross, when he rises. And really, again, we who trust in Christ will be victorious as well. And so we are to go, and, and we are to be people who proclaim, who pray, who speak boldly. Because the wonderful thing is, is none of us are speaking on our own authority. I mean, that's what would scare me, is to tell you what to do with your life based on what I think. Hopefully, none of you would listen. 
But rather, if I come and I say, this is what you are to do because this is the word of God. You are to believe, you are to repent, and you are to live a life in this manner. It's not me who says these things. Well, as we'll see, we we come with verses 16 through 21, this beautiful picture of Jesus as the Messiah. So he comes to Nazareth, to his hometown. And again, Luke highlights that he, as was his custom, would go to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he would read and then teach. Um, One thing to just note with this passage, though, is actually I think Luke has taken this passage, this historical event, I think he has moved it forward in the timeline. Uh, Because if you will look at the synoptic, if you look at Matthew and Mark, Mark has this event happening in chapter 6 after a large portion of ministry has been done. Matthew actually has this in chapter 13. So Luke, I think, is shifting this or, or fronting this to make a theological point. Because remember, it's still true. He's just bringing it forward because he wants this section to act as as lenses, as glasses that you view the rest of the gospel, the rest of his gospel through. And this playing with timelines, right? This is actually something uh, we do a lot uh, in books and movies. I remember the movie uh, Dunkirk, which to give a cohesive sense of what was happening, takes the land, the sea, and the air, things that are happening over a week, a day, and an hour, and collapses them into one. It's not that it's not truthful. It's still true, but it it pictures them as happening concurrently in order, to, in order to, to tell a point. It's accurate, but the director's playing with time in order to do something. Here, I think Luke is, is playing with time in order that he wants this front and center for us to be thinking about. And think about what this passage speaks to us about. Jesus' first words in Luke are that the spirit of the Lord is upon me. I am now going to proclaim the gospel to the poor. I have come to set at liberty those who have been held in chains. And I will recover the sight of those who have been blinded, set at liberty those who have been oppressed to proclaim that God's favor is here. This year of Jubilee is here. But also, Luke has two other points. One of those is is that this message, while incredibly gracious, can be completely rejected. Again, it, it, it's, it's mind-boggling to think that the people of Nazareth, that their response to this was to murder him in the end. And finally, Luke's third point. Jesus, in responding to this, responding to their unbelief, will highlight for them times in which the Lord has been graciously merciful to Gentiles that God had bestowed his mercy on those who were outside the covenant people of God. And this seems to be part of the rage that they feel at Jesus, that God is is not there as their slot machine to give them miracles. God is not their genie that they may command. God will show mercy on whom he will show mercy. And one of the people, groups he shows mercy on, are those outside of Israel. And so the first message, or the first thing that we see here in this passage is that the Messiah, he brings freedom. He's going around to these uh, various synagogues where the scriptures are being read and he is proclaiming the word of God. 
in many ways, Jesus here is just simply showing us the value of worship, as was his custom. Every Sabbath day, he, he observed the Sabbath and would go to places in order to hear the word of God read or himself read it and then to teach on what it means. And so Jesus comes. Here the synagogue leaders have heard of his fame and they invite him to read and to then expound upon what this passage means. And so Jesus is given the scroll of Isaiah, and he unrolls it. And actually, you'll have to remember, there are no chapter and verse markers. So he's got this long scroll and manages to find precisely Isaiah 61 in order to read from it. Clearly, uh, he knows his Hebrew Bible. And he, he must be very familiar with it. And he comes to this wonderful passage in Isaiah 61. And Isaiah 40 through 66, Martin Luther really terms Isaiah as the fifth gospel. And if you've read, ever read 40 through 66, they are some of the most comforting passages. Actually, indeed, chapter 40, verse 1, comfort, comfort my people Israel. And then all throughout 40 through 66, it's speaking of a Messiah who would come, a Messiah who would suffer, chapter 53, a Messiah who would gain not only his people but the nations, chapter 49. And then ultimately speaking of a consummative event in which their new heavens and new earth would be ushered in for God's people. That this is what Isaiah was prophesying and preaching. That he's really speaking of a new Israel, a new exodus that was yet to come. That he would bring good news to those who are held in captivity, those who are prisoners. And, and really the, the thinking there is to think back to when they were held in bondage in, is, in Egyptian times. Right? They were literally captives at this point. And the Lord redeemed and rescued them. But now they, they, they face not uh, oppression and, and physical captivity, but they find themselves really unknowingly being held in, if you were, spiritual chains, being held by, the, by, by Satan and sin and being bound by those things. Mark starts his gospel with Jesus proclaiming that the good news of the kingdom of God is at hand. And Luke really is echoing those same themes, except now we, we, we start with Jesus preaching these wonderful words. But probably the best part of this text is not just what Isaiah says, though it's amazing to hear these things. But then he, he rolls the scroll up, sits back down. Everyone's fixated on him at this point. And, and actually, traditionally in the synagogue, you would be seated while you taught. So he's sitting down. Everyone's looking at him. What will he say about this passage? And Jesus says, today, this very moment, the moment in which I have read those texts to you, it has now been fulfilled. It has been fulfilled in your hearing. I mean, what amazing words. I mean, it would be akin to me reading the end of Revelation, speaking about Jesus' return and the new heavens descending, and me concluding my sermon going, by the way, these have been fulfilled. Just look outside. 
That's what Jesus is saying here. They have been fulfilled in your midst. The one who is coming to bring liberty is here. The year of God's favor is here. And really, in verse 22, their response, I think, is indicative of the whole problem. Their response to this, I mean, the words that he has just said, if they are true, are the greatest words that they have ever heard in the history of their lives and any synagogue worship they have ever attended. All spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. Well, that's really swell, Jesus. Those are really great words. We feel really encouraged today. Uh, thank you for your great sermon. Um, off to lunch. <laughs> Rather, what they should have been doing, the people should have been cheering for joy. There, there should have been tears in their eyes. They should have been broken down there in their midst, thinking that all of these prayers that I have been praying everything that I've been yearning for, everything that I've been hoping for, every time I don't have an answer to my prayer, does God actually care for me? Does he care for his people? Will God ever rescue us as he's promised? Are these promises just empty promises to help me get through the daily grind of my life or are they true? And here Jesus says they are true. And they're happening right now. And so Jesus here, he, he shows, again, he shows such a priority for the word of God. Right? His, his first words of public ministry, Luke records for us, are a direct quotation from the Old Testament. In being tempted by the tempter, the great adversary of the saints, his words are words of Holy Scripture. But also, not only Jesus is valuing these, but he trusts that these words of the Old Testament are going to be fulfilled. And that means all the rest of them that haven't yet been fulfilled will be. I mean, this is the way Isaiah ends. In 65... He says, for behold, I create new heavens and new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. In chapter 66, the, the last chapter, for as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, and so shall your offspring and your name remain. And those promises have yet to be fulfilled, which John picks up in the Revelation. And so Luke keeps reminding us and showing us a Jesus who trusts his scriptures. And so we see Jesus who on his lips are the very words of Holy Scripture, but also Luke is painting this wonderful picture that he is the coming conquering king. Right, the, the picture of this one who is coming to release the captives, to give sight back to the blind, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. These images are, are conquest images. Right? There, there is another kingdom. And Jesus is the one riding in on the white horse in order to lay waste to this evil and wicked kingdom and save and bring out these people who are held in captivity to it. Just as God fought with the Egyptians. 
And so again, the response should be, this is amazing. And yet, in, in, chapter, in verses 22 through 30, they reject him. Right? They begin by speaking well of him. I mean, again, if I were to preach a sermon of this capacity or caliber, that these are all the amazing things that the Lord is doing, right? we would all be encouraged by it. But then look at the way it changes at the end of verse 22. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Isn't this Joseph's son? How can this one be the Messiah that we've long awaited for? This is just Joseph's son. This is the the man we've seen as an apprentice just doing carpentry. This is the man we've seen. We see his father and his mother right before us. One commentator, you know, made the, the continuing joke, you know, I've got his cabinet in my house. You know, that's a genuine Jesus cabinet. This can't be the Messiah. And Jesus, of course, understanding their hearts, understanding the depths of their words, as he often does, he, he really responds back to them in 23 with uh, arguably a very problematic proverb. And I think, uh, again, if it, as, as ministers are to follow after Jesus, uh, I'm not sure that I would be the first to sign up to preach this sermon that Jesus gives. But he starts with this parable that you, you've heard before, physician, heal yourself. Physician, heal yourself. And I think what he means here by this parable uh, is simply that Jesus has made this amazing claim. Right? He has claimed to be the Messiah, the one bringing the kingdom of God. And the people were probably about to quote that to him in order to say, okay, Jesus, well, back in your court, you say you're the Messiah. Now give us some miracles. Now give us some miracles. We've heard what you did in Capernaum. We heard these mighty things, the lame walking, the blind seeing, the dead being raised. So why don't you start, in a sense, performing for us? We've heard what you've done. But in a sense, what are they doing? They're testing God again. Jesus can claim all day long he's the Messiah unless they see some physical proof. They've already made up their mind that there's no way that this man can be the Messiah. I mean, in a sense, really, they're saying, do some miracles for us now, or we're not going to believe you. There's no way that this man is God's son. This is just simply preposterous. And what are they doing? I mean, again, the way that Luke frames this for us, they're testing God. They're, they're, they're now imbibing this satanic testing of God. The very thing Jesus told Satan, you shall not do. Right? Throw yourself down off of this temple. God will save you. Jesus says, you shall not test the Lord your God. What are these people doing? Jesus, do some miracles for us or we won't believe. Well, then Jesus continues, really not giving them time to interject. He continues by then showing these two instances from Old Testament history. And, and the two go together by really saying that God 
right? The, the, the way in which this is ordered is God is God and the people are the creatures, not the other way around, right? God is not bound by his people. God is not like these tribal deities where if you slash yourself enough, whether you, you pray the right thing, use the right incantations, he then is forced to respond to you. Jesus is saying that is never how God has acted. He is not this genie in a bottle. He is the sovereign Lord of the universe. And that he will have mercy upon whom he pleases and he will do as he pleases. Jesus is basically beginning to show them that this is God. Let me fill that out for you. God is not bound to do what you want him to do. He will do what he wants to do. He is the potter. You are the clay. But also, again, as we'll see, he shows how God has had mercy to Gentiles, to the very people outside of the covenant community. And this is a theme Luke will, will continue to show for us through the end of Luke and into Acts. But these two examples, they're nothing new. We, we saw this when we, at Christmas, looked at the women in the genealogy. Two women of Jesus' own genealogy are Gentiles who've been brought into the covenant community, Rahab and Ruth. And so then Jesus then gives them two examples from their own history, the widow at Zarephath, which is from 1 Kings 17. Right, there were many widows who were suffering in Israel. And yet, look at the wording. He was sent. God sends Elijah specifically to this widow. And, and not only really to save her physical life, but presumably to save her own soul. That God has, has, has abundantly shown mercy to this woman who certainly didn't deserve it, but neither does Israel. But then it, again, it continues to remind Israel really of, of Israel's purpose was to be priests for the nations, to, to fill out the Abrahamic promises, to be blessing to the nations. And then he highlights for us in the days of Elijah, sorry, Elisha, Naaman the Syrian general in 2 Kings chapter 7, that there were many in Israel who had some kind of skin disease that prevented them from uh, associating with other people and actually even coming into the temple complex. These people were completely ostracized, and there were many in Israel. And yet, who does God choose to heal? It's not just a widow out in the middle of nowhere outside of Israel. It's actually a Syrian general who has Israelite slaves. There are many desperately in need of cleansing, but Elijah is sent, Naaman the Syrian, general. I mean, really, truly, looking at that example, surely there are not, uh, is there really nobody better in Israel to bestow your mercy upon God? And yet, God sends Elijah to him in order to heal his body, but it doesn't stop there. His soul is healed as well. He becomes a follower of Yahweh. 
And so it's in light of all of that, that the crowds respond in verses 28 through 29, but it's, in many ways, it just, as I read it, it feels a completely disproportional response to what Jesus said, right? Because Jesus has highlighted these two events where God has shown mercy to Gentiles, but they have to be familiar with the fact that the entirety of the Old Testament is God's undeserved mercy to them. I mean, time and time again, whether it's the redemption from Egypt or whether it's his long suffering to bring about punishment or whether it's even the return from the exile. And that's not to say about all of the other instances in smaller ways that God has shown his mercy to his people. So again, it seems strange to say, well, God, you showed mercy to these non-Israelites. And yet to somehow forget of the abundant mercy that he has shown and actually the way in which he is actively showing mercy to them in that very moment. And none of this should even be foreign to their way of thinking. Isaiah 49 speaks about Gentiles being brought in. The promises to given to Abraham speaks of blessing going forth from him to the nations. So it has to be that what here is happening is that there's a spiritual blindness and a spiritual pride. I mean, these people just have to be thinking they deserve God's blessing and they demand that God perform miracles for them. I mean, that's the best that I can gather here from their response. And they desire all of this to test God. In verse 29, we see this murderous intent. So not only do they hate what they've just heard, but now they're fully committed to breaking God's law. Right? These were the very same people who just a moment ago said, oh, these wonderful, gracious words of Jesus. This is probably the best sermon I've heard this week. To now let us throw him off a cliff and be done with him. I hope to never preach that bad of a sermon, by the way. But, but they seek to violate God's law. I mean, they, they sound a bit like Jonah of old. Jonah, go proclaim mercy. Uh, no, I'm going to run the other way. But actually, the, the, the Nazareth people, you know, go preach mercy. No, I'd rather firebomb the city. Like, that's their response to this. And they would seek to violate God's law has to show that the, the, the law of God is not hidden in their hearts, that they are spiritually blind. But we come to verse 30, and actually, in all of their clamoring for Jesus to perform a miracle for them, I think verse 30, I think he actually does. I think he does perform one last miracle for them. Because you picture with me, the, the crowds, his fame has spread. They know what he looks like. He's grown up among them. This is Jesus, the son of Joseph. There they stand at the edge of this cliff, ready to hurl him over to his death. And Luke says, but passing through their midst, he went away. He just walks out. <laughs> he just walks through the crowd and merrily goes his way. And so he gives them a miracle. But think of the, the, the ways in which what this miracle testifies, that Jesus has left them. 
Jesus has abandoned them to their own devices now. They who rejected Jesus, he's now rejected them. And there's really no account of Jesus ever returning back to Nazareth. That as he tells his disciples later, dust, wipe the dust off your feet if you are rejected in the town and you never go back there. I mean, think about what has happened. They have rejected Jesus and now he has rejected them. And he'll never return back to that city again, to that town again. I mean, what terrifying words to think of. But again, the the Bible makes that plain throughout. Rejecting Jesus is not something that should be taken lightly as if that rejection can just be going, oh, I'm sorry, God, I didn't really mean it. But that what you're playing with here is, is eternal destiny. I mean, Jesus would actually say this to other cities. In Luke 10, he says this, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, interesting, there's Sidon again, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. For you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you, hears me. The one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. This is how Luke wants to frame his gospel. Mercy has come, but rejection has a cost. Mercy has come. Gentiles are being welcomed in, but rejection has a cost. The Son of God has been attested by God's own words. From heaven, the Father speaks, this is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. Not even this is just my Son, this is my beloved Son. This is the one whom I have loved from all eternity. Listen to Him. He is the one who comes speaking God's authoritative word. He is the one who has been long promised to come to right the wrongs of this world. Psalm 2, as we, I seem to keep being drawn back to. Psalm 2 ends this way, speaking of the fact that there is blessing if there is repentance. But Psalm 2 says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise Be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. There's the possibility for these rulers who have set themselves against Jesus to return. And then he ends, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I mean, serious stuff. That's what Luke wants to bring to us the seriousness of the gospel, the mercy that is flowing forth. But it is just so easy to trivialize that instead of to come face to face with what God is demanding and God is offering, that we do not deserve this, but yet he's offering it to us. To then reject it. What does that say? 
Let us pray. You've been listening to the Sermon Podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church. You can find us out online at gloucesterpres, that's P-R-E-S dot co.